What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 356 with my guest, Mary M. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different stuff. We're going to talk about cutting contact with parents. We're going to talk about intraracial politics. Um the the racism that exists within uh, specific minority groups towards each other. Um, well, it's too many things to even begin talking about. So let's just get to what the hell this show is and who the fuck I am. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. My name, at least as of this week, you know, I'm always on the lam. <clears throat> My name is Paul Gilmartin, and uh, yeah, the show is called The Mental Illness Happy Hour. This is very casual today. This is Casual Friday. I'm actually in sandals and fringy shorts and a kind of Easy Rider Dennis Hopper uh, cowboy hat, and somehow just in a week, I've grown uh, huge pork chop sideburns, and uh, I'm calling a woman my old lady. (laughs) Wow. I think I had too much green tea. Uh, the name of the show is The Mental Illness Happy Hour. Uh, it's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, sexual dysfunction, to just everyday simple negative thinking. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. I'm barely a human being. <laughs> that might have been a little excessive. Uh the website for this show is a mentalpod.com. This show is part interview with a guest. And then the other half of the show <clears throat> is me reading listener confessions via uh, the surveys that you guys fill out on the website. There's about a dozen different surveys that I like to, to read from. And uh, so there's some surveys before the interview and then some surveys after the interview. And um, here's a couple that I want to read. This is from the um, being hospitalized survey. Um, people's experiences in the in the psych ward. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Spoons Only. And, oh, I just suddenly got why, why she was called Spoons Only. Because they don't let you have forks or knives in the psych ward. 
Uh, why were you hospitalized? I was hospitalized for self-harm and suicidal thoughts and also because I could not stop having panic attacks. I was 16 when it happened. I told my mom I had a panic attack and didn't want to go to school. She started yelling at me to fight harder and I just gave up. I showed her all the cuts on my leg and she had no idea I'd been doing it for years. I told her I didn't want to necessarily kill myself, but I didn't want to be here anymore. I felt absolutely guilty and dripping with shame. I'd always been a good, quiet kid that they never fussed over, and now my mom was sobbing on the way to the ER with me. I tried not to think about what was going to happen next on the way there. Describe your experience. Everyone there was very kind, and I hated it. I didn't understand why they just wouldn't let me die. They were so fucking nice, and I cried because no one had been nice to me in so long. I was angry I couldn't cut anymore. Cutting was all I had then. It got me through my day. It honestly did make me feel better. The physical release was something that I could focus on in a panic. And when I was numb, I could feel the pain. When my life was falling apart, I could focus on healing and cleaning my wounds. They put me on Lexapro and sent me to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist I see is great, and I'm on a new med now that works better. My family treated me differently for a long time after all this. I was really good at hiding it, and they didn't trust me anymore. It's weird because they used to be really hard on me, but now they treat me so delicately. It makes me feel like a loser, but I'm glad I did go because now I have great support from my psychiatrist and a good medication. Thank you for sharing that. And I think she's a teenager. I lost the other page to this, but um, um, I could be wrong. That almost sounded like uh, the old uh, Macintosh thing when you uh, threw something away in your trash. <clears throat> this is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey, and it's just a piece of this. It's filled out by a guy who uh, calls himself TJ. And to the question, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? He wrote, I had a friend who died almost two years ago to this day. He drank himself to death over the span of about 18 months. Um, oh, you know what? Before I continue, there was something I wanted to say about that last one I just read about the ho being hospitalized. That is a rarity, somebody having a good experience in a hospital, um, having an attentive staff that is caring and compassionate. And um, sadly, that is the state of our healthcare system here in the States. So anybody uh, who hasn't heard me read a bunch of those uh, survey responses about people's experience uh, in psych wards, uh, know for the most part, a lot of work needs to be done in our country. And I would imagine probably globally as well. Uh, anyway, continue with TJ's uh, survey. Uh, so his friend died almost two years ago to the day, drank himself to death over the span of about 18 months. I reached out to him. I tried to help him, but in the end, he was such a negative influence on my own emotional well-being that I distanced myself from him. I wasn't the only one. A lot of his friends reached out and did what they could only to get pushed away. He took my distance as betrayal, and he ended up hating me until the day he died. We never got to make peace, and now we never will. If I could, I would talk to him again and try to reconcile our friendship. I think what you wrote is really, really important, TJ. Um, and you sound like a really compassionate person. And I just want to say that if somebody decides that they don't want help for their addiction or their compulsive behavior, nobody is responsible for that person changing. 
and no, and that person's death is not anybody else's fault. You did what any healthy person should do, which is you told that person, you know, I'm concerned about you. Um, it, it's taken me down emotionally. Watching you kill yourself, I can't be around it. That's what you're supposed to do. We can't change people. And trying to change somebody is chasing insanity, much like the, the drunk chases the bottle to the, you know, to the gates of hell. I don't think that was dramatic enough, Paul. But seriously, uh, you did the right thing. You took care of yourself and you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't have saved your, there was no perfect way to, to do it. What you did was the best way to handle that situation as well as your friends. And it's a shame. And sometimes, you know what? Life is just sad. Sometimes it's just a shame. Some people don't want to get help and they die. That's the reality. I'm serving it up harsh right out of the fucking gate. This is a happy moment, thank God, filled out by a woman who calls herself Lily. Uh, and she writes, My boyfriend and I cooked a beetroot slash carrot and ginger soup yesterday, ingredients we normally do not cook with, and spontaneously we decided to make dumplings. I know this sounds silly, but it was the most fun and relaxed in uncertainty I have felt in a long, long time. Being anxious about anything new made me realize that if I let go and live in the moment rather than control everything, it can be so much more satisfying and mentally calming. I've had such a wonderful time that I feel if this feeling comes around only once a year, it makes all the stressful moments worth it. And yes, I am talking about making a lovely bowl of soup and dumplings with my boyfriend. Life is so simply great sometimes. And I wanted to read that because that, to me, is as important as any other thing that I read on this podcast, because that is what mental and emotional recovery looks like in an instant snapshot day by day, is trying something new, not being overly rigid, and being in the moment. Um, I was struck the other day by the vividness of childhood memories that came flooding back, pleasant childhood memories of going on vacation with my family and being in the car and the smell of everything in the ice chest. We would go usually to lakes. Uh, you know, we lived in the south suburbs of Chicago and we would go to these lakes. Uh, a lot of times, um, Pawpaw Beach uh, was a was a place in Michigan that we would go to. And and there was a, there were so many smells associated with that trip um, that I know I had to have been totally present as, as that kid in the car to have soaked them in so so deeply. Like I remember, I remember the smell of you know like the the, the ice packs that you'd put in the styrofoam container, and there was a smell when you would open the lid, the styrofoam lid, and 
you know, like as peanut butter sandwiches are getting refrigerated, you can smell it, like does something to the bread and the peanut butter. And then, you know, there would be the my dad's bottle of scotch in the car somehow, and you could smell that. It wasn't open, but you could, you could smell, I should say he wasn't drinking it actively in the car, but you could smell that. And it was mixed in with, you know, smelling like the, the skin of, of an apple or the grapes that my mom would put between pieces of wet paper towel. And, the, 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 the taste of like opening a can of, of Fresca. Um, and then being at the, the cottage that we'd go to, I so vividly remember like that smell that cottages have when you open the door and it, the, the linen is kind of mildewy. It's not a bad smell. It's not a great smell, but it says vacation, you know, and my dad would cook bacon in the morning and, just remembering like the the feeling of of the the pavement on the hot pavement on my feet going to the pool from the cottage to the pool or the lake or or whatever it it was the feeling of of uh putting on your bathing suit when it hasn't dried from the day before and it's still kind of cold but you're excited because you're about to go spend the whole day at the pool if there's a way as adults that we can be present enough to remember stuff with that kind of detail. Um, I think we can, we can get through life with a, a fair amount of enjoyment, even in the midst of stuff that's difficult. And that's why I liked her, her previous, um, her survey about making the soup, because that's kind of an adult version of that. And I think that's, that's recovery. That's something to, to game, to, to gun for. You know, the opposite of that is future tripping, which I get caught in all the time. I get caught in black and white thinking. If I have an issue, I want it all solved yesterday. I, I tell myself this lie that I can't relax and I won't be able to be happy until this thing is done or fixed. And that is one of the biggest myths that keeps people stuck in not being present and not being their authentic selves is this belief that there is salvation uh, in some type of future event taking place. Uh, I just moved. I'm thrilled to be in this new place that I am. But the first couple of days, I was throwing my back out trying to get everything done because I had this myth in my head, this picture that if I could get everything all set up and taken care of and the boxes all cut up and put in the recycling, that then it would really feel good. And it hit me. I don't need to do that. So here I am a week later. There's it's probably a quarter of my stuff still isn't unpacked, but I'm already enjoying where it is that that I'm living. And I, you know, that, that corny phrase is true is it's not the destination. It's the, it's the, it's the journey because the destination is an illusion. And, you know, a great example of this to me was I was on my way to a sporting event one time with, with somebody, uh, and they had kids and this person was driving and they were just tailgating everybody and swearing, snapping at their kids, just being a dick. And then we got to the sporting event, and this person 
couldn't understand why everybody wasn't now having a great time. And it's like, it's, it's not a switch that just flips on. And there's a comedian uh, whose politics I certainly don't agree with, but he used to have this great bit. Dennis Miller used to have this great bit about being at a wedding. And he said, I was at this wedding where it was mixed uh, black and white. And he said, and this dance song came on. And he said, and uh, a lot of the uh, black people began kind of moving in their chairs and slowly getting up and sliding their way to the dance floor, dancing as they were moving. He said, and then I watched the white people. And he said, we all rose in our chairs, walked to the dance floor, and then actively began dancing as white people. And I thought, that's a perfect analogy for how not to live life. It's The analogy is to f- start dancing when you're sitting in the chair. Be present. Listen to the music. Feel the music. And that's a struggle for me. Or maybe I just have a terrible sense of, uh, sense of rhythm. <laughs> I don't know. Let me tell you guys about HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. With HelloFresh, all the ingredients are delivered right to your door in recyclable insulated packaging and come pre-measured in handy labeled meal kits so you know which ingredients go with which recipe. HelloFresh offers a wide variety of chef-curated recipes that change weekly, including the classic plan, which comes with a wide variety of meat, fish, and seasonal produce, the veggie plan, vegetarian recipes with plant-based proteins, and the family plan, Quick and easy meals the whole family will love. Better yet, you can choose a delivery day that works best for your busy schedule and even pause your account for weeks at a time. HelloFresh makes it so easy to cook delicious balanced dinners for less than $10 a meal. No more time-consuming meal planning or grocery shopping. Enjoy not spending money on takeout for an easy night or worrying about gathering ingredients week after week. I've tried it. I love it. I'm a fan of meal kit delivery services and HelloFresh delivers, man. I had one of their Hall of Fame cheeseburgers and it was amazing. It was flavorful. It was juicy. And you know, like that survey I read a couple of minutes back where those people tried something they'd never done and they cooked this amazing soup. It's like that. Do something nice for yourself. Slow down, be in the present moment and uh, be good to yourself. So for 30 bucks off your first week of HelloFresh, Visit HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code MENTAL30. Once again, for 30 bucks off your first week, visit HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code MENTAL30. Hey, I tell you guys week after week about how much I uh, love using uh, BetterHelp.com and uh, online therapy and how much I love my therapist. I want to read something that a uh, listener wrote uh, to me about their experience with BetterHelp.com. And this was uh, filled up by Wendy. And she writes, um, I signed up for BetterHelp.com a couple of months ago. I'd been hearing about it on the podcast for a while, but worried about the cost, explaining things all over again to someone new, etc. But I finally thought, this is my life. I want to rally up all the support I can get. And it has helped Paul, so I thought maybe it can help me. 
Well, I've been going to in-person therapy for years on and off, but wanted an extra helper, someone with another approach, a fresh set of ears, especially as we head into the fall and winter when I know I often crash. I was matched up with Rachel, who was a very supportive and positive person. It made me feel more secure to know I have Rachel available at my fingertips whenever I feel like typing a message. How this particular day is going, things I'm obsessing over, something I need advice on. I really like the back-and-forth messaging and weekly 30-minute phone calls. I love not having to drive to the appointment, wait in the waiting room, and sit across the couch from someone. It's actually easier to unload on someone that's not face-to-face. It feels almost like messaging with a friend who helps me. Rachel will sometimes attach worksheets, such as a grief worksheet, to help with processing my mom's death or exercises to help me challenge my black and white thinking. I'd highly recommend BetterHelp.com. Their customer service is great too, fast, kind, and helpful. Thank you for uh, for uh, sending that in, uh, Wendy, because when she, she sent me an email telling me that she tried it and liked it, I said, well, I would love if you would write something that I could read on air. And so she, uh, she did that for me. Um, and you can do um, face-to-face videos uh, each therapist is different each client is different and i personally enjoy the the face-to-face because uh, i like to see my therapist jaw drop when i uh tell her about my 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 negative self-beliefs all right and before we uh get to the interview just one more uh, brief survey this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself fuck mental illness and uh, her awfulsome moment, she writes, uh, My mom fought through stage four cancer that had spread through her whole body for 12 years. On her last day, my family and I stood around her deathbed soon after she took her last breaths. I was looking down at her through my blurry, tear-consumed eyes while someone in the room was praying over her. During the prayer, I looked up at my family and couldn't help but chuckle when I saw that my alcoholic uncle had shit his pants, and it was literally dripping down his legs. <laughs> it sounds like your uncle was making his own dumplings. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting and different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Akinzai in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) That is fantastic. I'm here with Mary M. uh, And that is, uh, that's a pseudonym so that she can speak more freely about about her life. Um, And mostly people in in her life. Yeah. Let's start with the fact that uh, I'm overseas. I'm in Europe. You happen to be here. Where would be a good place to start? You were raised in Brooklyn. Yes. And you are one of two. One of two kids. One of two kids. Yeah. Um, and 
your parents are immigrants? Yeah, my dad is, and my my mom is a child of an immigrant as well. Mm-hmm. So that's three out of four. Oh, the child of an immigrant. I thought, of, she, I thought she uh, emigrated here as well. No, child of an immigrant. So it's uh, three out of four grandparents are not from the States. Uh, you and I were talking a little earlier today about the politics of color mm. within a race. Yeah. Between each other. It's huge. And, and I th- said to you, that's a topic I would love to hear about. Yeah. Um, because obviously, I don't have anything to say about <laughs> it. But I would love to learn yeah. uh, about it. Can you can you talk about sure. what that looks like? I think every group, like every group of people, it's always within your own tribe, as it were, that you make the finer distinctions. You feel less threatened by the people who look nothing like you. You feel more threatened by the people who could be mistaken for you. And I think that in America, um, you know... It within, seems the opposite for Caucasian people. Yeah, mm, it depends. And I'll get to that a bit okay. with um, my experience in high school, where they actually were more threatened by each other than by an outsider. Um, so I feel like, I mean, yes, every group has, you know, oh, these people are not like us. You can at least band together with that. But it's that slick stuff. I feel as though human beings are generally more afraid of what could be mistaken for them than they are. Wow, of- I'd never thought about that. I know that I sometimes believe that you dislike somebody who reminds you of yourself oh, in terms yeah. of personality traits, but yeah. I never thought about it in terms of physical image. I think in terms of image, I think in terms of ethnicity, I mean, you know, right now the Eurovision Song Contest is on, mm-hmm. and all of these countries, it's very interesting, you see these little ethnic tensions between these different groups, and to us, we can't tell the difference. We're outsiders. We have no dog in this fight. But when they see each other and they hear each other, that's where the biggest conflict comes in. It's always the ones who are closest rather than the ones who are furthest. I mean, there's this interesting, like in um, Slavoj Žižek's book, Violence, he actually makes one of, one of the points that he makes, which I find interesting, is he talks about how proximity can breed contempt more than distance. Mm-hmm. And how we have this idea of like, oh, if everyone just sat down and got to know each other and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, actually, <laughs> um, that could be part of the problem. It's the people who you at least think you know, you feel the firmest basis for your hatred because you see them every day. I see. So you think there's nothing more to learn there or nothing more to say? I feel like if your lens is warped, all you will learn is what you want to see. And you're just going to be fed by the people in proximity to you. That's my take on it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that we're doomed, but unless we radically yeah, want to shift. We're, do- we're, we're doomed. Okay, yeah, we yeah. do. We're at the four-minute mark, and uh, <laughs> we've reached the conclusion that this is pointless. <laughs> there we go. End of podcast. Um, but w- Go ahead. Finish your with, talk. With colorism. I mean, there's definitely a stated historical root of that, with it, of course, going back to colonization and going back to slavery. And it's starting as a survival thing and then metastasizing into a counter-survival thing. Uh, for the people who don't know about that, could you yeah, sure. inform them? So the thing is with the U.S., the Caribbean, parts of Africa, where the Europeans went, they would often, well, I mean, there really isn't a good salad dressing to put They'd on They'd slave this. up. They'd slave up, 
you know, they'd slave up and rape down, and <laughs> you started it. You might have to take that out, but hey ho, it's up to you. But basically, they would just get everybody all kinds of pregnant. You would have so many kids, and you look at diaries of um their legally wedded wives, and a lot of them would be complaining about these outside children who obviously looked like them. You know what I mean? You'd have children running around who looked like these men, but these children were enslaved. Now, these men might feel a pang of guilt and be like, okay, don't give my son or daughter the horrible jobs outside. Put them inside. So then they would be the house servants, and then the darker people would be out in the field. So that's where you get that division, despite the fact that all of them were considered black because of the one-drop rule. So that persisted. Meaning if you have one drop of... Yes, uh, black blood, you're black. So you could look as white as a sheet of paper if somebody found out if you had like a black grandparent or great grandparents, you were black, you had no rights. Now talk about, let's say somebody who had a drop of black blood in them back then through today, things that they might experience or how people in the black community might view them that white people like myself would miss would miss i mean if you're talking about are you talking about people who could pass for white or um, people both who, both okay people who could pass for white and uh people who would be uh considered light-skinned yeah i mean people who could pass for white they had more of a choice but it was also a big moral dilemma as well it's like hmm do i abandon my family and get rights or do i you know stick with what i know the people i know have no rights but also be considered of maybe unfairly high esteem within this community. Because again, people are in survival mode. You get that epigenetic trauma. So even though... What does epigenetic mean? It means it's carried in your body. And they've done, you know, they've done those studies with mice where you can make a mouse afraid of a certain color, right? So you flash a red light and then shock the mouse. You flash a blue light, nothing happens. You know, you do this, you condition it. The mice goes off, has some kids, you bring in the mouse again, that mouse is afraid of a red light. That mouse is sun. That's so weird because you just <laughs> described a sexual fetish that I've had since childhood. <laughs> and it's so specific. This is, this is really See, you eerie. go for the long game, man. Yes. You go for the long game. I mean, mine is with rats, but it's still, it's very close. Living on it's, the edge. It's eerily close. Um, <laughs> would you like to mention um, what you uh, have studied? Sure. Um, I study contemporary American literature, which largely has to do with current events, specifically the war on terror. And um, she's a big muckety-muck with a bunch (laughs) of initials after her name. She's a a doctor. And... um, Child of immigrants, you know, it's... uh, We never feel good enough. Yeah. It doesn't feel... It doesn't fill that void inside. It still feels like I need a few more letters. Well, you're after doctor. What is there? You could get your MBA. I could also get a DUI. I mean, I don't know. This this just goes down a bad road, man. This goes down a bad road. Uh, <laughs> so back to the uh, the light skin drop of yeah. blood uh, thing. So let's take somebody. Uh, you just described somebody who could uh, who has quote, the option unquote, pass. Yeah, it's interesting too now that the trans community is going through this yes. exact same thing and, and it, you identify as queer yeah i identify as queer my partner is trans as mm-hmm. well and trans, trans woman trans man i'm sorry trans man yeah that's yeah. all right um so yeah so we've had some very interesting conversations about how these things overlap and then don't overlap because when you have someone like rachel freaking all, i mean you know 
who's like, well, I started a conversation. I was like, we've been having this conversation. You've started nothing. You're an exploiter and a fool. But that's a separate podcast. Yeah, that's now, a separate podcast. <laughs> entirely. And you have people, let's say, who couldn't pass, but are quite light. And they get both bad ends where sometimes they're unfairly elevated, but then other times they're unfairly put down because they're not seen as authentic or they're viewed as stuck up or they're viewed in a lot of different ways. Like that, they haven't struggled like I have maybe. Like they haven't struggled or they're not really black or they think that they're better than other people. Mm-hmm. So it's a preemptive thing. Um, Very much like uh, people that, that I've talked to who um, uh, come, come from uh, two different cultures. Yeah. You know, uh, somebody who is uh, one parent is Mexican and another person is Asian and mm-hmm. they go to uh, a barbecue and... Both sides feel like they can't relate uh, to that person, or at least that's how that person perceives it. They feel shut out. And it sucks. It sucks. I mean, you know, as I mentioned before, I'm quite lucky because I'm kind of straight in the middle. (laughs) So I remember like darker kids being teased when I was in primary school, which was weird because my primary school is predominantly black. And I remember being pissed off at that. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, why are you teasing this girl who was very, very dark? I thought very pretty. Um, but they gave her a lot of grief, like, oh, she's dark. And I'm like, but you're black. <laughs> but then also, you know, going to this other light-skinned girl and being like, you ain't black enough. And I was just like, no one can win. Um, fortunately, I wasn't in, you know, the crosshairs of that. But seeing that, it's just so painful. That policing of things no one can, can change. Control. And yeah. have no one, policing of things that, frankly, have no inherent value. Um, it's, that disturbed me as a kid. And it's interesting because in because of the generic gen, generic because of the genetic variation of black people, you get a lot of skin tone variation within families too. Mm-hmm. And this can play out a lot. So we'll talk some more about that. Sure. I mean, in my case, my grandmother on my mom's side was quite dark skinned and then she married my grandfather who was quite light skinned. And they had kids. And my mom is quite light. And I don't think my grandmother ever forgave her for that. Um, and it, why would you choose the term forgive? Because <laughs> it's such a, an interesting... It's like, sarcastic. Like, like, okay, it's I got you. It's very sarcastic. Okay. It's like, how dare you? You know right, what I mean? Because yeah. like, it just highlights the absurdity of, you know, it's like, well, that's what you expect. Like, what do you expect? You have a child with someone that look like that person. To my mind, which is not very large, <laughs> um, it would seem like it would also be equally possible that that mother would also favor a child yeah, who was light-skinned. So. So it, but there was like a weird envy thing in that case going on there. So kind of like the, the mom... Uh, you know, who begins to age as the teenage yes. daughter hits puberty and all of a sudden she's competitive with yes. her. Kind of like that? Yeah. Okay. And I think that was going on. Now, my mom's never really acknowledged that that was a dysfunctional family. Um, you know, she can never really turn around and say, like, that was really screwed up, but she doesn't really talk to her siblings. Um, she doesn't really talk to you. <laughs> I mean, she talks at me. But she doesn't talk but to she you. doesn't quite talk to me. And it's been a weird dynamic because I can see these things. Like, I'm 30 now, and I can look at her and I go, oh, God, this is why you're like this. Like, 
when you're a child, it's a mystery. When you're a child, your parents are basically gods. They're the handsomest and prettiest people. They are the smartest people. They can answer all your questions. And then you realize that you're not, you don't, you don't realize that you're simple as hell because you're a child. Um, they just seem really smart. But then as you grow up, you go, oh, oh, y'all got problems. Oh, deep, pro oh, no. And it all just kind of creeps up. But I'm at the stage past like, why are you a bag of problems to having sort of the compassion, but also the realization that distance is good. The Atlantic Ocean is my friend. It's a great boundary. Um, if anyone wants to use it. It's ironic, too, that the hundreds of years ago, the Atlantic Ocean was not your oh, friend. Oh, it totally wasn't my friend. <laughs> the Atlantic yes. Ocean. I'm yes. amazed I'm alive. For um, those of you keeping score, uh, in its sixth year, Paul made his first slave joke. <laughs> we made at least two or three <laughs> we, at this point. You're uh, welcome. Yes. Like, my brother and I make horrendous slavery jokes too often. It's not okay. You know, if, just for a second, though, let's address... Um, political correctness. Yeah. Because you work in the academic world. Oh, Christ. You're queer. You're a person of color. Yeah. You must see every <laughs> side of it from the ridiculously yeah. militant political correct people to the patronizing, yeah. backhanded, and racist, And two sides sexist. of the same coin. There are two yeah. sides of the same coin. The ones who are like, oh, don't take it so seriously versus the ones who are like trying to cover their ass so much that they've forgotten the point of what they're saying. Mm -hmm. They're the same people. Because you know what they have in common? They're not looking at, at, at people as human beings. They're not seeing the human being. If you either need to abandon a guideline because you feel restricted or you need to adhere so highly to a guideline because you feel afraid, you're doing the same thing. Now, I'm okay with occasionally making a misstep, you know? I'm okay with accidentally saying the wrong thing and being corrected compassionately. I'd rather treat the person as a human being and occasionally accidentally look politically correct. Not deliberately politically incorrect, but occasionally, you know, oops, I'm wrong, or oh, I'm right. It's kind of awkward, but I'm right. I'd rather sit with that discomfort and that, that fluctuation. That you were politically incorrect. Both. Okay. Both. I'd rather say something that seems clunky to me but makes a person comfortable see. or seems kind of not PC but actually is okay for the occasion. I'd rather do those things than not see a human being in front of me. And, and to my mind, intent is yes. 99% of it. I think intent but also being honest with yourself about that intent because if someone says, hey, that was wrong and you're like, but that wasn't my intent. Oh, yes, it was. <laughs> oh, yes, it was. If you hide behind that intent when someone says, like, hey, you know, blah, 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 and you cling to your intent and you cling to your meanings, intent cannot become a shield, is what I've learned. Once people start using intent as a shield, they didn't have your best interest at heart. And I mean, again, it depends on how they're approached. If they're approached in, like, a compassionate way, if they're sort of given some leverage, I think that's fantastic. Because we're all human. We all make mistakes. And we live in a world where so many different people, like we ha we're evolving to cohabitate with people. But really, mass media has changed the way we are as human beings. And we're learning, you know? I, I, I also have a fear that um, expression is becoming strangled by some of the PC police on Twitter where people mm -hmm. are shamed for saying something that might be 
old-fashioned oh, the in way what they, they say, but clearly the intent behind it. The way they jumped down Steve Martin's throat after that Carrie was the exact Fisher one died, that I was thinking I thought of. that was horrendous. Poorly worded, what he said, but the intent behind it. I didn't even it, think it was poorly worded. Yeah. I thought it was. I thought it was a lovely thing. He said something like, "You know, when I met her, I thought she was the most beautiful person in the world, and then when I got to know her, I realized there was much more there. Like she's really." Smart. He said, "A beautiful creature." Or, beautiful creature. And I oh, think well. that's what bothered people. And when I read it, I went, "That's an awkward phrase to use in uh, 2016," but. Um, in hindsight, uh, to shame somebody they for saying... They shamed him so horribly, and that really, that pissed me off. I was like, wow, this man's friend just died, and you're dragging him. What do you get out? That's my other question, too, because when you correct people, and I try to do this from a place of compassion, and sometimes when things are incredibly personal, like if people say really racist things towards black people or really hetero, heterosexist things towards queer people... I have to kind of, you know, pull it together and go, okay, how can I dismantle this bomb in a way which is constructive? So you're a terrorist. Shh. Don't let them get to me, Paul. You know I'm already on a list. Shit. I once ordered a book called The Spirit of Terrorism from Amazon Secondhand. You know, they printed the goddamn, like, name of the book and the price on the freaking envelope. Did they I get really? it. It says Spirit of Terrorism, four pounds. Are you it's like, come on, man. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, no. Oh, my God. But go ahead. I interrupted you. That's all right. Um, but you have to do it in the most constructive way possible. If you are correcting people because you want to feel good and righteous and blah, 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 that's, I mean, you're just polishing your Icarus wings. Exactly. And, and <laughs> they can't see it. There was a, a um, column on the Huffington Post uh, the day after Jimmy Kimmel hosted uh, the Oscars. And this person was nitpicking every single thing he did. Did uh, as if he was, uh, you know, just a plantation owner, and just going for yes, every every single ugh. one. And here was the 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 clue to me: mm. two sentences into sentences into it, before I even read what she had to say, that I went, "Oh, I have the feeling this is going to be one of those where she used a uh, you know a fifty dollar." word where a five center would do exactly <laughs> and that to me is usually the sign that this person yeah. is trying to separate themselves intellectually yeah and try to make up for some type of insecurity and this is just the vehicle. and peacocking like yes look what i can do and you find that of course you find that a lot in academia oh, it is nasty it's one peacocking. of the worst places to do comedy are colleges <laughs> oh, you would you would yeah, think it yeah. would be good but it is all about uh, verbiage and none of it is about intent you cannot do satire at no, colleges no yeah. you can hardly do anything and i mean i've been sort of dismayed by what i've been seeing in terms of i mean there are certain things at college campuses for example the guy charles murray um the eugenicist who wrote the bell curve he went to middlebury and in addition to protesting him they literally made it so that he could not speak like they kept pulling the fire alarm they were like doing a lot they were doing the most and, I mean, I saw Ann Coulter speak when I was an undergrad. I didn't die. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm still here. I saw G. Gordon Liddy speak when, <clears throat> when, when I was in college. And I remember thinking, why do they have that guy coming? But also being curious. And so I went and I disagreed with everything this guy had to say. <laughs> but I walked away going, wow, people who are amoral can be really charming. Yes. 
And so I benefited yeah, from having seen him. Because she was, I mean, there was a protest and there were talkings against her, like on the ground and stuff. But she talked. I said, I still hate you. Mm-hmm. And she said, I know. Well, you know, this is an imaginary conversation. Yeah. And that was the end of it. Were you uncomfortably uh, in each other's personal space in your imagination? Yes. Like like <laughs> elevator space? Well, with someone like Ann Coulter speaking, you know she can automatically point you out in like the sea of white faces, you know. So you have an awareness more than I think the other audience members that she's aware that you're in the room because you physically stand out. And so that was interesting to me. Um, but you know what I mean? I mean, it's... It's really come to a place on both sides where both sides are screwing up. And again, it's the same horrible coin rolling down the street where on the one hand, they're elevating these eugenicists, like absolute eugenicists. On the other hand... Describe eugenicists. I'm going to pretend like I know what you're talking about. Like these people who think that you can breed out imperfection in human beings. Oh, like eugenics. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. As if we're racehorses, right? Yes. So Charles Murray is... Which, which the Nazis were practicing yeah, by killing yeah, yeah. people uh, who were mental, mentally disabled. Or people or, they just didn't like. Right. You know, I mean, they were killing freaking Jehovah's Witnesses as well. What the hell? That's so random. Um, you know, just people they did not like. I guess they didn't like anyone ringing their doorbell. I mean, it was so arbitrary who they would go for. Right. And that's the thing about eugenics, um, which I find fascinating, how arbitrary and how we can, you know, fit to create... It's like water. It fits whatever it goes into. You know, there is no perfect human being, but it keeps coming back over and over. And so what did the bell curve have to do with this? The bell curve basically was claiming that black people were inherently less smart than white people. When was this published? This was in 1992. The bell curve? Yeah. This guy's still alive. He works for the American Enterprise Institute. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. He's still making that cash. So I could see why people would be radically opposed to him. And I also would like to question why the public, why the college Republicans at Middlebury brought him on campus. I think those things need to be addressed. But when he's there, at least let him show his ass. <laughs> you know what I mean? He'll just give you more material to bury him with anyway. I think, I think one of the uh, things that drive me the craziest about the, the far left mm-hmm. is this desire to treat they they think that they are um uh reaching out and being um compassionate and they can't see that they're being patronizing that they're yeah. treating uh people who are different or out of the mainstream as if they need to be rescued i wrote an entire paper about this um about tumblr actually and i got a lot of crap um, because there was a scandal in a community, in a queer community on Tumblr, and it turns out one of one of their sort of stars was a rapist. And um, I sort of traject- looked at that trajectory, and I was reading it. Um, I wrote this like five years ago, and I was reading it recently, and I was like, damn, I was harsh, but I wasn't wrong. And there was like a weird, there's a patronizing thing, like they would put trigger warnings for post, for like colonialism. Like, it's one thing if you put... Now, here's the thing. I am okay with a trigger warning for eating disorders. I'm okay with a trigger warning for rape. I am okay with a trigger warning for self-mutilation. There are certain things that that are incredibly common and that people who have gone through it should not have to see again. But colonialism? (laughs) Nobody warned my people. (laughs) 
You know what I mean? Like, and we made it through the storm. Literally, I'm sure there were storms on those boats. Now, I just, you know, there's a patronizing thing. Like, for example, I, I was telling my boyfriend this, and I was like, you know, no, I've never seen a trigger warning post where you click it and open, like, trigger warning racism, and you open it, and it just says, nigga, you know? <laughs> it never does that. Now, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not like, oh, at least they warned me. That was just raw racism. That's never just raw racism. He put up, one time he put up a, a post because there was a really screwed up Guardian article that was very transphobic. And he put out a post. He's like, hey, sign this petition to get this person fired. You know, someone put it under a trigger warning for transphobia. Oh and God. so, of course, then people are going to see, oh, transphobia. I'm not going to click this. When they could have signed a petition to do something. Now, this is where, I mean, this is where... There's a line between humanizing people. I am, I am all for humanizing people. I am for making people comfortable. I am for making people, you know, feel alive and feel like they are reclaiming space in the world as long push them out. But I can also see where people are just doing what I call PC culture just to cover their behinds. They're dehumanizing. Yes. They don't care about those people. They don't care about black people. They don't care about queer people. They don't care about disabled people. They just want to look okay and they want to look self-righteous. That's where I'm seeing, yes. that's the difference to me between PC culture versus yes. taking on new vocabulary to make people feel okay. Yes. That's a big difference to me. Yeah. I think, uh, what, a, what a perfect way to sum it up. Let's, let's move um, to your life Hi. in particular. Um, what would you like to talk about first? You want to talk about your relationship with your mom? Mm, well, I'll start. Um, wherever, wherever you would like to, to, to start. Uh, we could start with snapshots uh, from your uh, childhood or sure. adolescence that you think uh, kind of defined or certainly influenced who you are, how you view the world, who you didn't want to be. <laughs> who didn't I want? I mean, I remember growing up because uh, we grew up in Brooklyn before it got sexy. Mm -hmm. um, the Brooklyn you see on TV is not the Brooklyn I grew up in. And my parents were understandably extremely protective. It was rough. Um, we didn't play with the other kids on the block. When we rode our bikes, it was up and down, like sort of the backyard. And that was it. Um, we were very sort of insulated in that way. Um, we went to Catholic schools, also very insulated, very protective. And my parents had a very, they're very, um, perceptive in terms of seeing what we needed to make it in america right not emotionally no Academ not emo academically no. and <laughs> academically and economically economically yes it would be fair to say that 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 is that took their, priority. their great exception yeah that yes. took priority and also understanding like okay these are black kids people will view them like this we have to counter that um but emotionally i feel like their needs probably weren't met as kids and so they couldn't turn around and go like, okay, but how does it feel? Like They didn't have any tools to share. They had no tools. They had no tools. The main tools, they were like, okay, we need to do this. We need to do that. The big word was sacrifice. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Um, to the point where I was like, why did y'all have kids? <laughs> you know, because I felt like, you know, they had to give up a lot. Now, that being said, they didn't have us young. They had us like in their mid to late 30s. And... Is it really helpful to tell your kids you're sacrificing for them when it was your choice? 
That's the thing that I always wonder. I mean, you don't want your kids to grow up to... I can understand not wanting to raise brats. I can understand not wanting to raise people who aren't accountable. However, I think sacrifice is worth bringing up if you see your kid taking too much for granted. Mm -hmm. But if you bring up sacrifice when your kid is trying, that's horrible. <laughs> like, you know, when, you're, when your kid is genuinely trying and you're like, don't forget, I sacrifice this. You're like, okay, that really takes the wind out of my sails. Mm -hmm. And they did that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's the way they were raised. Like you constantly remind your kids that things were sacrificed. Um, and, you know, we were quite good kids, I think. I have an older brother who is sort of the golden child. And very high achieving. Very high achieving. I can't quite get into the detail, but yeah, we like, don't we don't want it to be too uh, identifying. Too identifying, but suffice it to say, just picture a cartoon of an overachiever, and that's him. Yes. Uh, <laughs> like, yes. Um, yes. A lot of status. A lot of status. Looks great on paper. Um, wife is also an overachiever. The baby, too cute. Suspiciously cute. <laughs> um, the baby I'm just absolutely enamored with. She's my favorite person in the world. Um, so fun. And I remember the first time I met her. And she was only a couple weeks old. And I looked at her and she just looked dead at me like, I know you. I know exactly who you are. And she reacted in a really strange way. Like I held her and she was just squeaking and flopping everywhere. And my brother was like, she normally doesn't do this. Like, cause she had met other people. And like she was uncomfortable or no, she, she loved it. She was excited. Yeah. She was so excited. She's like, I know you. And because we have similar voices, my brother and I, I think there was something that she recognized. Mm. You know, she couldn't articulate like, oh, that's his sister. Therefore she's related to me. That wasn't happening. But I think there was something primal where she went, I know you. Oh, wow. I know that's who you cool. are. Oh, she's brilliant. She's excellent. So your your brother was the golden child. Oh yeah, and you were the scapegoat. The scapegoat. I was the scapegoat for sure because my grades were not great. Now here's the weird thing about me as a child: I wrote multiple pages of like a play, like I just wrote like some weird adaptation of the Phantom of the Opera for no reason, as you do when you're nine. <laughs> um, like there were things I could do that were above the abil the ability of you know, your average child. But I remember one time, I, I think, you know, my mom got sick of me writing the play, so she took the disc away from me um, because it was taking up too much of my time. And I remember saying, well, if only you could put that attention to math. And that was the thing. It was math, 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 math. You keep failing at math. Uh, now, they wouldn't say, oh, you're doing really well in English. You're doing really well in history. And frankly, the math that you learned there, you're not going to have to do. Here's how to pay some bills. There was no sense of how can we actually help you. Or how we can embrace what you're good at. There was no embrace. Um, a lot of the things I felt like, like with piano lessons, you know, I had to take piano lessons for years. I was horrible at it. And, but because my mother wanted to take piano lessons as a child, I guess she had to, you know, sort of live through that through me. Now, at one point I wanted to do track, but unfortunately track was the same day as piano lessons, so I wasn't allowed to do that. Because, and now I realize as an adult, it's because she doesn't know track, right? Mm -hmm. She doesn't know a thing about running. She can't control it. She can't help me, in quotes, with it. And so because she couldn't control it, it made her feel uncomfortable. 
Now, fortunately, I was able to quit piano and do drama at school, which again, she couldn't really control. The things that she felt most comfortable with in interacting with me were negative comments. Negative, neg- and my dad also. What do you What do you mean? And, and by the way, you know, as you describe that, I, I also imagine uh, from what you you and I in uh, conversations yeah. outside this have gleaned from your mom is is that she really wanted for you the things that she could oh, brag desperately brag desperately and show you off as if she you were an extension of her. I am that, an extension of yeah, her for yeah. her. I mean, I you know, she wanted. I think she told herself. I want my child to have what I didn't have, but it became something else, you know? And I think a lot of people... forgot to ask that question, does my child want this? That's the million-dollar question, right? Um, And she never really made that connection. And for her, it was like... And it was really weird, too, because you would think someone would be able to brag, oh, my child is really good at this and that, but she just ignored the things I was good at and focused on the negative. And she focused on the negative for years. Like there were years where, you know, in the summers, even I couldn't really get summers. I would be doing like math workbooks and things, things I really wasn't good at. Um, I remember staying inside a lot. I remember, you know, sort of being separate from the family and kind of being like, I felt as though here were these three perfect people with the pimple on their ass. That was me. That's really how I felt. Wow. Um, And my mom really would, it almost felt like she was targeting me. Like, I can see it now. At the time, I felt like I earned all of it. But she really was like, she would say things like, what's wrong with you? Everyone else has it together. What's wrong with you? Wow, that is horrible. Which is heavy to say to a kid. Yeah. And I think that must have been said to her. I am convinced. I'm sure it was. I'm sure she was made to feel like the pimple on the ass of her family. And I don't know. I mean, sometimes my dad would step in and be like, whoa, it's too much. But it wasn't. He only is realizing, I think, really in recent years, how damaged this relationship is. I think as a male, he probably felt like, oh, well, she's the mom. She knows what she's doing. I think it was a little bit of that. And only now is he like, holy crap. Um, nah. <laughs> that was damaged. Um, there was and, a lot of damage. And it's also kind of, uh, from my understanding, textbook that when there's a golden child, there's also a scapegoat. Oh, you have to. You have to make your life simple, man. And for what you, from what you've described to me, your mom's relationship with your brother sounds really emotionally incestuous. It was. It yeah. was very much like And that. it is. And it still is. Yeah. She like He would be the only one who could talk her down when she was like in one of her little fits of rage. She has a, she's a bit of a rageaholic sometimes. And, and this is when he was... He was like in his teens. Yeah. You know, this isn't like her grown son and then like a difference in the relationship. This was when he was in her teens and he in was the only teens. one in his teens. Sorry. <laughs> that, like, and he took was, this time machine, man. And it was just weird. It's like, is that a new phrase? He was all up in her teens. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, terrible. But like he was like, you know, 17 or so. And she just relied on him too much emotionally. And. I felt like she sort of would short circuit my dad's power by going to him. And I remember watching this as a kid and it's sort of like we were saying, it's a cult of one when you have a parent who is that domineering and then makes you the special one and makes you the sunshine kid. But then the other kid on the one hand, the other kid as a child feels like dog shit, but then has more freedom later (laughs) and is like, this is kind of terrible. Yeah. Mm. When we were talking, uh, I I was saying that it's, it's almost like uh, 
you know, the golden child thinks that they, that that other person is giving them all this great stuff yeah. because they're letting him in on their life and treating them like a therapist and these other things. <laughs> and because compared to the other sibling who's getting scorn, you think that, you know, you're, you're having a feast, but you're really, it's just crumbs. It's, Your crumbs look like a feast. I think it's also that the crumbs are taking things out of you. It's worse than crumbs. It's Ipecac. It's like taking all of your energy and your soul. Whereas at least the other child can go like, I don't need this crap. And I did that. I mean, I remember when I was 15, the real turning point came. And this was like quite kind of scary. Like, okay, so I'll just back up a bit. So I was 15 and I left my day planner in school and this was the weekend and for some reason my mom wanted to see my day plan and I looked in my bag and I was like it wasn't there and this was like at night or something and she was just like go upstairs before I kill you what and so I went upstairs and I mixed together some chemicals from the bathroom and I drank it and tried to kill myself so the next day nothing happened I was alive somewhat disappointed it was just... So clearly you were also not good I am also a failure. At chemistry. Oh, that wasn't my chemistry year. The next year was the chemistry year. This was, the, this was, I believe, the physics year or something like that. So, you know, I got some... Walk me through what you thought and felt when your mom said, I'm going to kill you. And maybe even what was leading up to that. You know, um, it was, the funny thing was we were watching like a film on PBS. It was a nice evening. You know, they show them nice little old-timey movies. This might have been like the prime of Gene Brody or something like that, you know, so, like just a classic old, mm. you know, and for some reason she wanted to see it, the day planner. And I was quite a, a forgetful, messy kid. We'll get into that later. Um, and then we found out why. Um, but I left this thing at home. I think when I came back to school, I realized I had put it on top of my locker while I was getting something else because I'm a person because people make mistakes. Um, but my mother always gave the impression of never making mistakes. And so I always, for years, felt so inferior to her, like incredibly inferior, and that I was ruining her life, and that she would have gotten further in life if I had just, you know, if she had, you know, stopped it, just had my brother. But I think if she had just had him, I think he would see more of the other side of her. She'd have found a way um, to make him pay. Because she would have had to get all that negative energy out on somebody. Somehow. She would have found something about him. To exercise that. So is that what you think influenced your decision to kill yourself? Because you just at that moment, it was just kind of a, it wasn't the comment itself. It was just more of this was just the final straw. It, that was, was, it was the final straw because also my mom had a tendency if things were too nice. Like if let's say we were having a nice day, she would have to bring up the grades. It was like compulsive. It was like a dog. She needed drama. Own. She yeah. needed drama. And it wasn't even cause drama. It would just make me sad. And just, you know, sort of make, you know, make me feel deflated. But she needed to assert that she had this power over me. So we could be having a nice day out. And then she'd mention, oh, but you're still doing badly in school. Yeah. And, you know, she couldn't let things be nice. It, it sounds like she had such a, so little sense of herself that she felt so invisible in the world mm. that by moving people around was the only way she could remind herself that she exists. Yeah. And by being able to sort of bring things down to this, like she really held on to that deficiency, which in retrospect wasn't the biggest deficiency. She really made me feel like I was the only person in the world with my problems. 
you, you know what's interesting is it's it's so angering that your mom was doing that to the child, the very person that she is supposed to protect from abuse, but it's also heartbreaking that your mom felt so invisible yeah. or filled with pain. I think she, she has a lot of pain. This, that she couldn't see what, what she's doing. She has no idea. She has no idea. And that's the really sad thing. And that's where the compassion comes in and the boundaries come in, where I just kind of look at her and I'm like, I am so sorry this happened to you. I am so sorry. I have only seen the tip of the iceberg, I think, when it comes to her. And I just got to step away from the vehicle. I just need to back away because it's not going to get better. And that is where the scapegoat is lucky. That's where the scapegoat lives because I'll tell you about the golden child in a second. Um, But I remember, and also at that point when she said that, I went upstairs and then had the suicide attempt. This was also when I was realizing I was queer. And I don't think I had come out to anybody yet. Um, And that was really tough. Now, just to backpedal a little bit, um, I was a scholarship kid at a really posh New York City school. And of course, that was a drama with my parents, too, because then when I still wasn't doing well, they were like, well, what if they gave the scholarship to someone else? It was just, it was horrible. So it was constantly having this thing dangling But it was the math. Things that it was you were math. failing and you were it doing math great and the, in the science verbal stuff. And language stuff wasn't doing well. And this was when I was 15 when I had the suicide attempt. Now, when I was 16, my parents, my parents finally caved to the school because the school had been saying, look, there is probably a solid reason why your kid is having problems. You need to get her evaluated at a learning specialist. And I remember my parents going like, well, we don't need to pay a set of money just, you know, to, to know that you're lazy. We know you're lazy. It was narcissism but, and fear because they were so afraid they'd end up with a stereotypically black child. Now, <laughs> like, which that's, is... That's heavy, man. Yeah. No, but when I look at it now, I'm like, oh, shit. Um, there was a racialized... I, I'd be very interested. I remember you had a guest who... This was years ago. And I believe his parents were like, oh, like his parents were Jewish. And they're like, well, you would survive. You look less Jewish. Like if they were, if the Nazis came back or something like that. And I'm very interested in people who had these racialized childhoods. Like these childhoods where the parents, like we talk about sexualized childhoods, but we also need to talk about racialized childhoods where your parents look at your identity and put that on you in a way that smothers you, Mm. you know? Um, And you you think you're toughening your kid up and filling them with, you know, no. um, and it comes from a place of trauma. It comes from a place of fear, but you're actually paralyzing the shit out of your kid because they learn that the skin they're in is liability first. They don't know that it's history. They don't know that they should be proud. The first thing they learn is, okay, people will see you as this, so don't be that. One of the things that I am seeing so much of in the years that I've done this podcast is how much it backfires when parents set out to try to mold their children into not being something instead of, you know, letting them be people, finding out what they're interested in, finding their passion, aiding that, guiding them, you know, giving them um, a punishment or consequences when, uh, you know, they break rules or whatever. But it's just that doing anything from a place of fear. It will fail you big time. I mean, you know, they have things to brag about now, which is fun. 
Um, you know, but I, it was too easy for me to leave the country. It was too easy. It should not have been this easy. How do you mean? Um, emotionally, it was too easy. Oh, because you felt like you were escaping rather yeah. than uh, yeah. separating. It, it felt like a prison break. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it shouldn't feel like that. I should feel some sort of, like, if I had kids, I don't want them to be dependent on me. I want them to be able to function wherever they want to go. But I'd kind of want them to miss me. I'd kind of want them to be like, hey, you know, I'm planning when I'm visiting you next. Whereas I am trying to finagle my way out of Christmas. So it's hard for me to humanize their fear because there's no, you know, they're a dry well. How do you humanize a dry well when you try to talk to them and they're so defensive? Um, it it's work. so sad. It's really one of the saddest things is is that what should so easily be correctable, yeah. reconnectable, yeah. is so impossible if the one side is blind and doesn't think that yeah. there needs to be an adjustment or can't be open to the idea that their point of view might not be the only reality. Right. Or that they have an idea that there's one-upmanship going on when you actually just want to help the relationship out. I'm going to take a wild guess that neither of your parents have been to therapy. <laughs> no, neither. Neither, neither, neither. They, they, they point fingers at each other. I mean, my mom has done more demonstrative stuff where I'm like, I think you need to talk to somebody. And she's just like, oh, you just think I'm crazy. Um, and I literally, like, I remember we had a shouting match over Christmas decorations, of all things. I put them away. That's, that's my favorite tradition, yeah. by the way. So I had put this shit on the tree, and boxes were there. So I was like, let me put these boxes away before she yells at me for not putting these boxes away. This is the damned where you do damned if you don't type of thing. I put the goddamn boxes away. <laughs> you see, I'm already, like, reliving it. <laughs> and I can, like, feel it in my body. Put the boxes away. She comes downstairs angry as if I tore up the house. You didn't even put them away neatly. I still had decorations in there. You're going to put them back up. And she just went ballistic as if I like, you know, pulled down my trousers and shat on her Christmas things. So I put the Christmas things back up and I said to her, listen, the problem isn't me taking these up. The problem is the way you spoke to me. And she automatically went into denial and anger and screaming. And my dad came downstairs. And before he could say anything, she said, she basically was like, don't turn your back on me and take her side. My dad's like, I'm facing you. <laughs> she's, wow. yeah, she can get she's really sick. strung up. She's, she's sick. She's a really she's, sick person. She's in her sickness. She is so deep in her mm -hmm. sickness. And then days later, it took days. I just didn't talk to her. Days later, she's like, listen, I'm really sorry. Like, like almost like a TV show. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and Do you I think was, she, she was no, sorry. Though? She was just no? uncomfortable. She's not sorry. Oh, She's just uncomfortable. So it was, you think she was more... I think she's embarrassed that she really showed her behind. Mm. I don't think there's... I think it's like when children do something quote-unquote bad, but they don't know. Mm -hmm. They don't really know. Because she's going to do the same thing again. So it, it sounds like <laughs> you're saying that she apologized because she thought that's what she's supposed to do, not because she was genuinely sorry that yeah, she yelled yeah, exactly. at you. She has no... She's really in her sickness. Yeah. Let's talk about you outside of all of this. Mm. Negative self-beliefs that you have, yeah. issues that you've struggled with, having a trans uh, partner. Which is awesome. Who transitioned. Yeah, while we were together. 
what it was like coming out in high school. Um, you know, coming out at school was easier than coming out at home. Um, coming out of school, I mean, this was in the early 2000s, so it was still uncharted territory. Um, so they were like, okay. And there, it was a Catholic school, so they couldn't do things like have a GSA or mention that gay people were, you know, extant, um, you know, existed. But I remember in the anti-bullying handbook, they, they put in a clause about sexual orientation that had not been there the year before. So it was like this sweet little gesture, like, we've got you, we're covering you. And even thinking about that makes me kind of choke up, you know? And it was just like, we, our hands are tied, but we're here. And that was beautiful. That, like, honestly, like, if I ever make a bajillion dollars, not like they need it because they're a rich-ass school, but I would give it to them and be like, here are scholarships for little queer kids. Like, just do it. Because they did it right, you know, given the parameters that they were given. You know, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of the stuff that you've shared with me while we're recording and, and beforehand, it there's a survival instinct in you that it seems like had you been the golden child, you <laughs> might never have grasped or it would have taken you much longer it's like y you got your pain up front yes and it allowed you to go this movie sucks i'm i'm bailing it's not a bad place to be on paper you know maybe i would have been working at some big corporate whatever whatever uh but at the same time emotionally when i look at the type of people i was picking before i got out of that part of my illness i would have kept doing it i would have kept picking people who made me feel like I was what was wrong with the family. And by the way, just so we don't forget it, you uh, were diagnosed with uh, nonverbal learning. Yeah. Okay. So yes. sorry, let me yeah. dance on back. Um, so I, when my parents finally got the evaluation, they did diagnose me with nonverbal learning disorder, which is not as it sounds. It means. Oh, I thought it was disability disorder. Okay. Oh, the D is interchangeable. Yeah. Um, it depends on how you're feeling. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It, this is a weird world, but basically you have problems with things like math, language, um, abstract thinking, but you're really, really good at verbal things. And I was like, oh, I could have told you that. Um, but I also was diagnosed with ADHD as well. That was fun. And that was a big shock to my parents because they thought they had me all figured out. They really like they would say things like, you just don't love us enough. You don't care enough. You don't care about all the sacrifices we make. That's why your grades are like this. And then suddenly went, someone went, oh, no, actually, there's a concrete ass reason why <laughs> she has problems. And they they felt kind of dumb. And, you know, you do feel a bit of vindication because it's like, I told you. Yeah. I want to know more about your inner oh, turmoil, gosh. your inner negative self-talk and how you deal with it yeah um sounds like coming out was okay you're at school at school at home it wasn't received well that because, was received poorly because obvious and why why would you do that to them i know horrible i mean fortunately my brother was very supportive i will say that um we were very close as kids and we're not as close as i'd like us to be um but he has always had my back with that which is excellent, and that changes things. But for me, a lot of my biggest thing was what I didn't realize was OCD at the time, 
I just thought I had crazy thoughts about people dying, and that when I met people, you know, of course, when you meet people, you logically think through all the different ways they could die so that they would be protected, you know, or that like you count stairs compulsively just to make sure that they're there, and that determines whether or not you have a good or bad day. Hmm. Now, see, the one thing I would have told that learning specialist. Had, I, had she been framed in the proper way, I would have told her about the counting thing. I remember thinking, should I mention this? And I was like, nah, she'll just think I'm stupid because I'm bad at math. Why would I be counting if I'm bad at math? That, that could have saved me years that, of bullshit. You know, that, that <laughs> makes sense that that would go through, through the mind of a, of a high school kid. Yeah. You know. Um, so my major demons were these repetitions and these fears and also fears of compulsively reaching out and touching people. Like, you know, there's that OCD fear of inappropriate touch that paralyzed me around people. Couple so you wouldn't actually touch them. You no. would be afraid that you would compulsively touch them yeah, without I'd, being able to stop yourself. Yeah, I'd be afraid that suddenly I'd get, you know, some sort of Tourette type tick and mm -hmm. then touch people. And couple that with being queer. I mean, there were, there were times when I would walk through, like, let's say, like Macy's or something. And I would deliberately not look at the lingerie aisle because I was like, that'll make you gay because it's lingerie. It's too sexy. Look away. Because you, at, at that point, had already had um, fantasies about not being, even being with fantasies, women or but feelings? Just, yeah. Okay. I, I wasn't even in the fantasy place. That's the thing. It, that, not even like the fantasy place was too scary. Fantasies are reality, don't you know? Well, you know, the, it, it was a tough economy then, and fantasies were hard to come by. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, it was what was it, the 90s? I don't know. It, oh, no, fantasies were too easy in the 90s. That's why we're in the mess we're in now, eh? But I, I mean, I have to say one of the joys of growing up was having that sense of humor. And basically, on the, it was weird because as my, while my brother was the golden child, at the same time, he totally kept me alive. Um, having those jokes that you could go back and forth on, having those memories, having that shared memory. Up to now, I don't know how people, where it's just them, I don't know how they do it. I mean, of course, that's the only thing they know, so that is how they do it. But, wow, when you don't have a witness, I don't know. I don't know how people make it through. I really don't. Um, I mean, that was one of the big joys of my childhood. You know, my first memory is chasing him around because I had to be like him. I had to follow him. Mm. You know, I, my first memory isn't even my parents. Nah, fuck them. Like, I was just, you know, running around after, you know, the older brother and trying to be exactly like him. So. Were there any positive memories with, with mom and dad? Oh, yeah. I mean. Well, share some of those. You yeah. know, I like to try to give a, a yeah. three-dimensional picture of people. They're very, like. I remember sort of being like the cuddly toy, you know, because when you're the youngest and when you're the girl, it is so like, even if people aren't getting along with each other, they can hug you. <laughs> you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because you're just little. And there are so many pictures where I'm just kind of clinging onto someone's leg or clinging onto someone's arm. Like up to now, I'm very, very cuddly. And like, it's weird to me if I don't see couples holding hands or anything. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I always have to have to grab and hold hands. Um... I know that it, part of it, and this is the part that's hard to pick apart, whether this is just the narcissism or wanting me to do well, but they've been very good financially. Like, they can do financial support. They know what things are important for me to get ahead, you know? Mm -hmm. so, so school was never like, oh, sorry, you can't go to school, you know? 
they're like, oh, no, this is important. And I know some people don't even have that. You know, so that's where it gets very interesting. But there are things that could be done for free where we would have a much easier... You know, that, that, you know? That and me, that's, what, that's what makes it painful. And, and those are the things to me that really stick with a kid in terms of feeling loved is seeing them, embrace, noticing what that kid has a passion for and trying to aid that, that passion. Or, or just, you know, taking a day off from work and going fishing with your kid because that's what the kid likes or something like that where it's, yeah. it's just for a second, it's not what you want for that right. kid. You know, oh, look, a rainbow right behind you. Oh, that's a single big ass, rainbow. That is a big ass it's rainbow. gorgeous. Pretty. Um, but yeah, they are. Um, there are things like, you know, with plays and stuff. And when I did different activities, once we were able to get away from the, oh, let's not make her do activities that make, make her hate herself. Um, then they were able to do that. But So they did drift away eventually from... It took a while. The piano lesson mentality. Yeah, from the, well, you have to do this. To like, oh, wait, there are things she's good at. And that's okay, too. That doesn't mean she's lazy. They were so operating from a place of weird fear and misinformed fear because they were like, oh, if you quit, that's going to look bad for college applications. And I was like, I'm 14. Oh, my God. You know? And that, I blame you know, part of that, largely, I blame the American dream for the way, I mean, yes, my parents were adults. They have agency. You know, there were things. And, but at the same time, what America turns people into is horrible, especially if you're a minority. Because you're already being told in so many words that you're at a disadvantage. So type A people will hypercompensate. So you're so afraid for your kids. You are so afraid that you will bulldoze your relationship with your kids. You will full out bulldoze. You're so afraid that they won't uh, achieve the American dream? Yeah. Yeah. That you will bulldoze your relationship with your kids no matter what. You're like, well, at least you're alive. Mm. I mean, it's like that line in Fences, you know, the, the film based mm -hmm. on the play. And he says something like, like, Pops, how come you don't like me? You know, and he's like, well, I don't have to like you. I'm responsible for you. I take care of you. That's what the American dream does to people. I don't have a problem with the American dream. I, it's kind of like religion. I don't have a problem with religion. I have a problem with how people interpret mm -hmm. it. That's my, that is my problem. Yeah. Um, but this isn't about me. This is about you. <laughs> See how I made that about me? That was nice. <laughs> I'd make a terrible parent. Um, Let's talk about your partner. Mm. Um, He's fantastic. He began transitioning when? When did you meet? We met like, oh, wait. And he had already begun sort of like the name transition, like the non-medical transition. Mm -hmm. um, and we met in class. I had gone abroad to do a master's. And I remember sitting down in class, looking up. And I was so glad because I was like, great, I'm out of America. I just gotten out of another like really piss poor relationship. And I was like, this is fantastic. You know, I'm just going to have focus, have some me time. I sit down. I go, I want that one. I want that one. Um, for me, it was just love at first sight. I was like, this is the cutest person I've ever seen in my life. Oh, my God. It was like seeing a very sexy Pokemon. I don't know. When mm -hmm. someone's just so cute, but you're also attracted to them, mm -hmm. which is a weird combination. I'm like, oh, look at you. I think it's a very, it's a very weirdly female thing. When someone's like adorable, but you're like, oh, 
but I want this. <laughs> um, and at the time, he was going through like a lot of stuff with, you know, getting the approval for the gender clinic and things like that. And so we also turned out to be in the same theater group. So I went to this English language theater group and I was like, he's here, you know. And part of me was like, oh, no. And at that time, though, he was uh, presenting as female. He was presenting as male, but he hadn't had the hormonal, oh, the surgical. Okay. You know, so he was constantly being misread as female. Oh, I, and, I mean, I misgendered him when I first met him. Um, talk up, talk about that because there's so much yeah. anxiety. I find myself getting anxious sometimes talking about yeah. things for fear that I'm going to use the wrong pronoun yeah. and and hurt somebody's feelings or you know. I totally misgendered him in front of a group of people too. Yeah, that was because we hadn't spoken in that class and I didn't catch his name. Um, and to be fair, he was wearing a pink shirt, okay? Um, <laughs> I was like, that threw me off. Um, so we met in this theater group, and we did a scene together. And I accidentally called him her, and he was like, oh, actually, it's he. And I was like, I am so sorry. And then I was like, this is interesting. And I briefly thought, like, hmm, okay, this changes things. No, actually, it doesn't change things. And at that moment, did you think that this is a, a trans person or I just completely misread this? I just was like, oh, this is a trans person. Okay. Okay. You know? So yeah. that's why. And then, but he was cool enough. Like he didn't do it in such a way where the greats came down. You know, like I think some people, if they've really been traumatized, can be super angry and cut you off and then you never learn, mm -hmm. you know? But I felt like, okay, we can have a conversation about this, you know? And so I talked to him about it later. And then it turned out we had a lot of stuff in common, um, just in terms of our interests, in terms of like certain life experiences. We both had disastrous first relationships with really self-absorbed people. <laughs> and, you know, people had their own baggage and stuff. And it was like through that where we realized what we actually wanted. Um, and it was funny. It took me months to figure out that English wasn't his first language because it was absolutely fluent and pristine. Like, it was wow. so, super perfect. But then suddenly one day I turn around and he's actually speaking the language of this place. I was like, what the hell? He's speaking in tongues. It was really fun. Um, but we were in this... Do we want to say where we're at or is that too identifying? Too identifying, I'm afraid. Can we say we're in Europe, though? Yeah. A European country? Yeah. Okay. It's pretty out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> now they'll know it's not Scotland. Um, <laughs> sorry no I love it I swear I love it there's a reason why I'm saying that and it's coming from a place of love so don't email Paul <laughs> if you're from there it, I, I think the highlands are gorgeous anyway but you know what I'm talking about yes now anyway um, but yeah it was it was very interesting so we started dating on like you know and, and the beautiful thing about my theater group is that I'm still friends with those people up to today like it was like i had a built-in friend group instantly because this was undergrad no this was masters oh, so okay. i'd come from undergrad i escaped america and you know i had done study abroad and was just like i want to go back you know so i came back and i had like this built-in group of friends automatically like people with the same interests and it's great because you kind of grow up together you know people are having children now people you know i've been going to various weddings it's awesome now when you say escape America, how much of that is escaping 
the dysfunction of your family and how much of it is escaping America culturally? Both. Um, when I went away to college, that didn't prove to be as much of an escape as I wanted to be. Like I said, it was the early 2000s, um, which, you know, you would think it felt okay at the time. But where I was was quite a sort of racist, sexist, kind of shut down place. Um, European city? Oh, or, no. Oh, uh, no. I'm talking about where I was in America. Oh, oh, that's right. Where that I college. went to undergrad yes. in America. I felt so claustrophobic. I felt like I had been wished away into the cornfield. You know, like the episode of The Twilight Zone with the evil little boy. And when he just sort of blinks at you and you disappear from the screen, that's where he puts you. Um, that's where you take class. So you felt kind of invisible and couldn't, felt, couldn't be your authentic self? Yeah, I felt very invisible. I mean, I felt sort of like um, an appendage to the place rather than integrated. And I felt like I was making friends in spite of rather than because of the place like all of my friends were either gay people black people or poor people mm. and we all felt external to the place we felt like we were part of a project they were doing to make up for lost time but i remember the weekends would come and i would just feel so depressed i would feel so depressed on the weekends and coming from a big place like new york to that place which was in the elbow of massachusetts i was dying i was just like there was no place to walk or people watch you know there's no place to be anonymous so so how did it change then when you left the states i felt like i was able to walk around be anonymous i was almost able to get that new yorkness back but like in a fresh place i see so new york actually would have been okay if you hadn't, hadn't had the family pressure there probably but also new york is kind of terrible yeah <laughs> you know mm. I, it's a little bit of both okay it's like i get it's like europe is like new york with health care <laughs> you know what i mean like that's a t-shirt <laughs> europe new york with health care yeah. and know? by the way share the thing that you said at uh when we were having coffee oh, about gosh. uh yeah, the first about, thing you said what about would, you know living at the speed of yeah I would be dead yeah if I, I I remember one time having this conversation with my dad because we go back and forth a lot about the situation with my mom and I think at one point I said to him I was like you know I'd be dead if I lived at the speed of your understanding which is because true. they came around to you being uh, gay yeah but uh, super late but super late I mean they did and they didn't because now they think I'm in like a cishet relationship and I'm not mm -hmm. and they don't know that he's trans which is fun so fun um yeah and that was another thing that, that we were talking about is um you you were saying I don't need to tell them that's the thing so for all the little queer teenagers listening out there and I know y'all are there you don't have to come out I mean I'm not saying live a lie. It's not that much of a stark binary. But if I remember in the early 2000s, people were making this big stink over like, oh, you need to come out to your parents. You need to come out to your parents. No, you don't. If it's not safe. If it's not safe. If, I mean, seriously evaluate your relationship as it's gone on before. If the love has been conditional, and at the time I didn't really realize it was conditional love, um, but if it's been heavily conditional, then don't come out. And it's okay 
I mean, it's okay to like never come out. It really is. As long as you have the family you make, because you always have to make your own family, whether you're gay or straight, you have to make your own family in some way. Um, as long as the family you make is that supportive place, that's all right. The thing that really makes it work is the transparency and that things are so clear. There's a lack of games. You know, everything is straightforward. I know why he says things. I know why he asks for things. There is no underhanded, passive-aggressive, whatever that I had been used to up until that point, you know? And I, I don't have to manipulate my way around. You can him. express your needs. Yeah. And not worry about being shamed for them. Yeah, exactly. I can say, like, there have been times when I'm like, you know, I really need to be alone. I just need to, you know, take a walk and be on my own. He's like, okay. You know, he doesn't give me grief for it. We can talk about things. If there's something I'm doing that makes him uncomfortable, we can talk about it and vice versa. That's huge. And it's amazing, too, when you realize there's almost nothing you can't say if you can just find the right way to say it or the right time to say it. Exactly, exactly. Because I remember, you know, just relationships before were just misunderstanding upon misunderstanding upon passive aggression. And that's what I was That's a pretty sweet cake, though, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Get them truffles on yeah. top. <laughs> but it was, you know, and then finally, just to be like, okay, I don't need this garbage and neither do you. And it was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. So that's a really good foundation to have. Uh, there, there's like an inner um, compass that you have. That The more I talk to you, it feels like like it was forged by by being the scapegoat. Like, <laughs> yeah, like so you, it really sucks how much... That is a part of my personality. Yes. And, and I, by no means, am saying it's good to be the scapegoat. <laughs> no, it's ass. What, what I'm saying <laughs> is that you took something that was terrible and you used it to. It, I had to make your lemonade, advantage. you know. Yeah. Not to make did. a Beyonce reference, but yeah. I kind of had to do my best with what was given to me, which was, you know. On the one, it was a weird combination because they they gave me, you know, my parents, they gave me a weird mix of good things and bad things. And I don't think they realized that some of those good things would be the things that I would use to pry loose from them, <laughs> which is a Can bit you of, be more specific? I think this feeling of like, you need to be independent. Oh, Can't, I see. You know, yes. like you need to do things for yourself. We believe you can do this, like the good stuff. They should have been more specific. <laughs> You know, just that, that kind of thing. And now they're like, oh, crap. You know? Yeah. And I really, like, I wish I could see a future where I missed them. I wish I could see a future where I looked forward to planning on visiting them. You know, where I was like, okay, every six months, I'm going to go over there. Maybe every four months, I'm going to go over there. Because I have, you know, this adorable niece who I want to visit as well. I would love that. Like, somewhere there's that parallel universe I could just slip into. And where things be like that would be my dream. It, it, it. Go ahead. That would no, but that would that would be my dream. That would be the perfect thing. It's not like I want to be outside. I yes. don't gain it, from it, this. And it is so hard to cut contact mm. with a parent for so many people because I think there's something instinctively in us. Oh yeah. That 
that wants because they do so home. much and it's so hard to be a parent but at the same time you're like what's healthy for everybody exactly involved? exactly and you know and that's the thing like my father is like please don't cut contact with your mom please don't be estranged from your mom and i'm like that's not your call you know i know you're in a bad you know in in a kind of unhealthy relationship with her i don't want to be yeah you know and it's it's you could see of course there's a very human reason why he wants things to be a certain way but also it's kind of unfair to go like oh no you have to stay in this dysfunction do you think and this is probably an obvious question but do you think had you still been kind of uh, allowing yourself to be um if you had been still been having a lot of contact with your parents and not expressing your needs and not expressing boundaries, um, do you think that you would be able to be in a relationship like you no. are now? No, not at all. That's a very interesting question. I can tell you immediately, I would have tanked this relationship. I would have tanked this relationship with neediness because I was extremely needy in all my previous relationships. I would have tanked it by hiding my anxiety. I would have repeated that pattern. I would have tanked it through being passive aggressive because that's what to me looked like being adult, you know, being a grown up. I would have really like just fucking harpooned it badly. And I think the time we spent apart, I think we eventually would have drifted apart, you know, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't have seen why. I, I honestly think like the greatest thing that you can do for yourself is to protect yourself from people that give you a stomach ache. <laughs> oh, Jesus, I, yes. I, I, Bad honestly, restaurants, abusive people, <laughs> all of that. The more I talk to people about yeah. this, that is like the one thing, people who are thriving, not necessarily economically, but people who are emotionally mm. thriving are people who have started listening to their gut yes. and saying, I get a stomachache when I'm around this person. Oh my God. I can't relax. I need to look at this and not have the overriding thing be what should I do mm. for everyone's happiness? Yes. But what feels good to me in a healthy way? What yeah. Feels good. Yeah. And that's how, that's basically how I got out. Um, because, and when I say how I got out, it makes it sound like, oh, it would have been a rough, it wouldn't have been a rough situation. It would have been a golden parachute. It would have been golden handcuffs in a golden cage, you know? Meaning because if financially oh, things yeah. would have been better, yeah, you'd be, be getting support from them. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I'm still getting support from them, which makes it so awkward, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can't be completely honest, you know? So You're depending I'm, on them for uh, health care? Uh, yeah, back in the States, yeah. yeah. But now it's like I have these enormous student loans that they're helping me pay off. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's what I mean. That's that mix of light and dark. Yeah. Because there are some people who are so narcissistic. Like I, I had a friend, her mom, you know, stole her college money and used it to bail out her druggy ex-boyfriend. You know I, what I, I mean? I think that's a good call. I think that's just being a good, uh, a good lady. That's, <laughs> maybe he was a terrific guy that... Uh, <laughs> I can't he just even, needed a chance. I can't even finish that joke. Yeah. Um, like, so you know what I mean? So yes. when you're aware of that and you are aware that they are doing these things, but at the same time, you're just like, why are you so good at the financial and so lost with the emotional? 
it's, it seems like because <laughs> that is everything to them. Yeah. The, it's fear. It's all it's goes fear. back to fear. Yeah. They are so afraid. They are so afraid. And I just wish there was a way to make them. I don't think there's a way to make them not afraid. And I think that's another way to drive yourself crazy oh, is yeah. trying to change them and, and trying, trying to, to make them, them see. Yeah. Yeah. You can't. No. You can't. You know, like there is no way to make them know that I'm safe mm-hmm. in this world. Yeah. There is no way. And I felt like, you know, past a certain age, I felt like they just weren't enjoying being around me because I just was a bag of problems to them. I wasn't a fun kid to be around for them. I was an okay kid. I was perfectly healthy, normal kid, but their worries got so in the way. I mean, even with the school stuff, I remember my mom saying to me like, oh, I was so relieved because I would like lie awake at night crying, worrying about your grades. And I'm like, why? Why put that between us Mm -hmm. without going, okay, what are things that someone could do if they don't get perfect grades? (laughs) You know? But she was so fixated on changing me, changing me, changing me, changing something without even knowing what she was doing that she bulldozed the relationship. As as you share about their anxiety and their fear, you know, and wanting to protect you and all of that stuff, and maybe this is just me super intellectualizing, but one of the things that I see when there's trauma involved is the ripples Mm. from it that can go on years, decades, generations. Yes. Um, Do you think any of these ripples come from you know the 1600s the oh, 1700s oh god can you yeah. can you talk about that because um it's it as a white person i get upset when people talk about racism as if or talk about slavery as if there's a line under it. It's over. It's over. And there's if, no ripples. But also it. as if slavery was over and Jim Crow never happened. Right. You know, and that's a whole other set of ripples. And in this country, I mean, if you think about it, black people have only been legal since the 70s. <laughs> like, and that question, when you see what's going how do you, on. How do you mean? Like, allowed to be alive. Allowed, since the 70s? 1970s. I mean, if you look at when the laws came in and then when things actually began to sort of get moving in terms of people obeying those laws. If you think of the civil rights movement, you tend to think 60s, right? Right. I mean, that was still fresh. So I tend to think of the beginning of people being able to breathe being like maybe the 1970s. Because there's a big difference between laws versus, like things becoming the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law actually taking off. I got you. So I got you. And then, but then when you look at the police brutality and the lack of prosecutions, are we still legal? You know, I mean, I remember American apparel had that shirt legalized gay, but they really should make a legalized black. Um, Are we really allowed to legally live as human beings? When you see what parents have to do, um, I mean, there, there's an episode we had with uh, a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Melanie Watkins. Oh, she's great. And she was talking about the conversations that she had to have with her teenage son about walking down the street, how to not look threatening. Yeah. And it's 
It's sickening. It's sickening. Yeah. That that's a reality. And I think, I can tell you, that's something that I would have never imagined. And something you said when we were walking, uh, but it was about sexism, was that we all have ingrained beliefs. Even if we don't believe we're sexist or we're racist, Mm -hmm. we still have artifacts from culturally yeah we're all complicit yes we're all so complicit not not meaning that we want to be racist or we want to be sexist but there's just certain ideas that have become normalized yes to to us and maybe if we had that conversation more often then people wouldn't be afraid to dialogue about it for fear of being shamed yeah um, etc. Yeah, because it it is very um, it's very heavy. I mean, there is a sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't situation I see now. Where yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna use the wrong words. I'm going to oh yeah, you know, do this or yeah. or, or whatever. When sometimes a person's intent is to just want to be educated, to be enlightened, yeah. to make a connection. Yeah, because it's been done so many times in like without a genuine you know, basis where sometimes people are just doing it to do it. Um, they want to exalt themselves intellectually yes, or and, they want to be provocative mm-hmm. and they're just using people, you know, and it's, it's a tough balance between balancing that reaction, which comes from trauma of people shutting down versus like, you know, how much compassion can you leverage is the thing. And I mean, that's one of the benefits for me, I think of having a trans partner and kind of of him having a black partner <laughs> mm-hmm. because we're coming from such different places um, where I remember I was having a conversation with him and he was like, you know, as a trans person, you can't really put down that you work with trans organizations because it outs you. And I, you know, it's so frustrating. I was like, I know what you mean. Like as a black person, I can barely put down, you know, being part of a black students union because then they'll know I'm black from the CV, from the resume. And he was like, what the fuck? Like he had never thought of that, that, you have to whitewash these things. Because it will hurt your chances. Yeah, you... of getting a job. He had never thought of that. Now, he was coming from the trans perspective, which makes perfect sense. You know, mm-hmm. that if, oh, I worked with this trans organization. Wait, what? You know, that sends up a flag. Now, that one makes sense to me because we are still in what feels to me like just be- beginning the civil rights era. For trans of, people. For trans people. Um, but for black but people, for black people yeah. on, on an interview, yeah, just you whitewash I mean, your resume. I've talked resume. to people about this. What? Yeah, because they don't want any trouble. You know, why do you think people name their kids certain things? What do you mean? Why do you think people give their kids neutral sounding names? You don't want to give your kid a super black name. Some people don't even give their kids gendered names. You know, Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. Mom deliberately named her Taylor so that she wouldn't get shut out of a job. He gave it a gen- gave the kid a gender, gender neutral, neutral name, like the stuff is so deep. And then she winds up being self employed. Look at that, her mother wasted <laughs> a name. That's I hope that's the only thing you take out of this podcast. Is Taylor Swift's mom has terrible instincts, <laughs> terrible business instincts. But you see what I mean? Like yeah. the levels to which people will whitewash and try not to cause any upset because you don't know. Who's on the other side and who's reading things? You don't know who's gotten to that position of power. 
And it sounds paranoid, but hey, people got to work. You know, when my dad was looking for jobs, they didn't know. You know, they looked at his resume and they were like, oh, you lived in Europe. Okay, we'll call this guy. And he showed up and they were like, uh. They literally would send him back into the hallway to wait while they sort of talked. And then they'd have the interview all smiles and then they would never hire him. This happened to him multiple times in the 70s. So you can see why people are very funny about those things. You know, you don't want to flag up any minority anything. And meanwhile, there's this perception of, oh, minorities get everything, you know. Mm. They get affirmative action and they get, and like, are you serious? That's the exact same, you know, idea that keeps us out. And that is more powerful than, you know, I remember when I broke up with my ex, before I broke up with my ex, I'd gotten into my school, which was a really prestigious uh, university. And she said, oh, they wouldn't accept me. I'm just a white girl from Westchester. And I was like, wow, bitch, I thought you were on my side. You know, like, did she think I just faxed them a picture of my face? You know what I mean? Like, mm. yep, that's me. I'm in. So there's a nastiness that I've come to where people just assume things have been handed to me. And that makes me fucking bitter. Like, that's one of my major things where I'm just like this assumption that I'm just sending pe people pictures of my face. I'm just here to fill in a spot. Mm. You know, I contribute nothing. And meanwhile, you have to work twice as hard, so you're considered half as legitimate. Well, to be fair, what you would do is you would send a picture of yourself, but then under it you would write, y'all got any quota left. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm in. You know? And that's, but could you imagine, like, you're dating someone, and they say that to you. You know, oh, I'm just mm. a white girl from Westchester, as if you sent them a picture of your face. Mm. Like, what that does to you is just it's heartbreaking it's absolutely you know you're just like wow this person doesn't think i'm capable of anything and and in that moment the person is just making it about them about them which is so fucked that yeah. they weren't rooting for you or no whatever um anything else that you'd like to share oh gosh well i talked about the ocd about my partner gosh um I think we covered, we covered a lot. We, yeah, we covered a lot of ground in this lot. mysterious land. <laughs> Thank you so much for for sharing your life. And, uh, you know, I just had a great afternoon hanging out and drinking coffee and shooting the shit yeah. and uh, enjoying the tumultuous uh, weather here. <laughs> One minute it's the most gorgeous weather I've ever seen, and the next time uh, hail is is raining down oh it's a great place i recommend you all come here if you can find it <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> thank you i really love talking to her and love uh hanging out with her um i learned a lot in uh in this episode and i love episodes where where my mind gets blown or expanded uh i asked her for an update and she says um things are going well uh i got a job teaching english and i'm still working on my second book things with a fiance are good my parents still don't and may never know that he's trans which is fine because they love him mess uh after a long dance with the legal system i got residency here which is great and a huge weight off my shoulders now that I've got insurance, I should seriously look into finding an English-speaking therapist. Getting there, exclamation point. Biking to and fro, listening to podcasts has been a pretty good interim therapy, I must say. Uh, I want to tell you guys about Zip Recruiter. 
Uh, if you're hiring, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward, but you also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for the job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart... It's smart... I'm not very smart. It puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, you guys can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, F-R-E-E. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. And let's do it a third time. For free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. Let's get to some surveys. This is a happy moment. And this was filled out by a woman who calls herself, This week I've showered and cleaned the crumbs out of my bed. The name's... Endlessly, endlessly amused by the names you guys come up with. Um, and she writes, Over the past four months, my depression reached new depths. I went weeks without showering, talking to friends, or leaving my bed. Every day I woke up filled with dread and hopelessness and went back to sleep to avoid facing the day. I dropped out of my master's degree after I forced myself to go to the introduction meeting and was so overwhelmed with anxiety in a room full of people I recognized but couldn't communicate with that I had to leave. I couldn't contemplate the idea of actually having the responsibility of committing to studying when I couldn't remember what it felt like to have the ability to carry out basic tasks. I felt like my life was just falling further and further apart and I couldn't see the point in attempting to regain control. I hid away from everything and ignored countless messages from friends whom I just couldn't remember how to connect with. I became more and more convinced that none of my friendships had any meaning and that there was no one I could turn to. In the classic depression-anxiety cycle, the more I isolated myself, the more daunting the prospect of interacting with others was and the more reclusive I became. Each day I would wake up even more anxious as the number of unanswered calls and texts grew and I felt less and less able to deal with it. I live with friends, and I would keep my bedroom door closed and lights off so they would think that I was out. I'd hear them talking and laughing with each other and feel more and more isolated and more and more unable to escape the isolation. I'd leave my room in the middle of the night, scramble downstairs and grab as much food from the refrigerator as I could carry so that I wouldn't have to go to the kitchen in daylight hours when there was a chance of bumping into someone. I became like some sort of rodent preparing for hibernation. I didn't quite reach the stage of pissing into my bedroom bin to avoid the trip to the bathroom, but it did start to seem like a reasonable option. Uh, 
After dropping out of my master's degree, I sobbed on the phone to my parents about how hopeless I felt, and they begged me to go to my doctor. I booked and canceled multiple appointments in the previous weeks as I convinced myself there was nothing wrong with me. I was lazy and had nothing to offer, but this was just who I was. By the time I visited the doctor, I felt numb and entirely lost. I didn't know how to put into words the level of emptiness I felt and think I started by expressing that I'd been feeling a bit down. I muttered some of what must have been going on whilst staring at the wheels on the rotating chair of Dr. Smith. And after about two minutes, he offered to put me on a med. He said he often wouldn't prescribe meds after the first consultation, but that I described all the symptoms of depression. I felt so relieved by this validation of what I'd been feeling. I'd never taken any sort of antidepressant before, but I put aside my nerves and started taking them the next day. Three weeks later, I received a message from from my two oldest friends saying that they were in my area and asking if they could visit. I suddenly realized that I'd responded without even thinking, saying that I'd absolutely love to see them. They arrived the next day, and we had such a good time together that they extended their visit and stayed the night. When they left, instead of feeling relieved, I felt sad to see them go. I had actually enjoyed the company of my friends, the same friends who a month earlier I couldn't remember what we had ever had to talk about. I hadn't been counting down the seconds until they left. The conversation hadn't felt like lifting weights, and I wasn't conscious with every sentence that what I was saying wasn't interesting or funny and that they didn't actually like me anyway. Now I leave my room without listening first to make sure no one else is home, and I've remembered that I I actually do enjoy being around others. I feel like I have things to contribute in conversation, and I talk about what's on my mind without rehearsing my sentences first. Since I've gone on my meds, I've realized that I had been depressed for so much longer than I realized. Suddenly, I'm actually interacting with others genuinely rather than just pretending to interact to get through social situations. Getting out of bed in the morning feels manageable, and I've remembered what it, what it feels like to look forward to things. I still have bad days, but now I feel like I'm actually living my life again. I'm not doing anything incredible, and all my problems very much still exist, but I have no I still have no career plan, a painfully failed relationship, and in fact, I'm still shit at most things. But now, I can see the humor in all that. And I've rediscovered the power of laughing about these things with the people who who are around me who genuinely do love and care about me and want to be around me. I'm sorry for the ridiculous length of this happy moment, which seems to have become more of an autobiography. But Paul, I know you know about the power of journaling, and this is the first time in my life that I've wanted to write my feelings down because I want to understand how positive I feel, rather than how lost and helpless. I also just wanted to encourage anyone who is wary of meds to give them a try if you think they might be able to help you. I know I've been unusually lucky with finding success on the first ones I've tried, and I know they're not a magical solution, and I'm likely to struggle with my depression again in the future. But for now, I've got my life back, and I only wish I'd done it sooner. That was not too long. That that was beautiful. That was like, that's like, in a nutshell, why I started the podcast, is I just wanted to say, oh my God, it can get better. I almost killed myself, you guys. Here's here's what I did. And here's how I learned to 
ask for help and talk to people and look inwardly without becoming self-obsessed. I'm still working on that one. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by the dyslexic that can't say no. Uh, there's probably a joke in there that I'm not getting, but um, anyway, uh, they write, Growing up, my dad always shamed my mother for her weight. As a kid, I picked up on this and have always had problems getting myself to eating and portion control. I don't know if I was fully anorexic, but I would use food as as uh, if it was something I would have to earn. My parents got a divorce about three years ago. It was it was nasty. My mom, who was about a size 12, would always tell me awful things that my dad said to her in the marriage. Once he told her that she was disgusting and his biggest fear was that I was going to look like her when I grew up. Needless to say, hearing this at 19 did not help with the eating problem. My dad and his new wife came out to see me this last weekend. I was freaking out because I just recently gained about five pounds. When he was saying goodbye to me on his way home, he hugged me and said, Wow, you're really skinny now. I am so proud of you. That is so fucked up. You know, I bet there are so many parents that don't know that praising a child for being skinny can fuck them up as much as shaming a child for not looking the way you think they should look. And I'm sure there's a fine line in there somewhere, you know, where I don't know exactly where it is, where where you can recognize that your child is putting an effort into self-care, um, but for it to be maybe a compliment on them caring for themselves um, rather than hitting some mark that makes them more valid as a human being. Uh, this is, again, from the Being Hospitalized survey. This was filled out by... Um, uh, a woman who calls herself covered in cat hair. And uh, why were you hospitalized? Anxiety, depression, uh, and adjustment disorder. I've been hospitalized five times in three different states. One was a real snake pit, that, but the others were supportive and caring. I learned a lot from the group discussions, but often the best interactions were with other patients. I wish that my insurance would let me stay long enough to determine whether a medication change is going to be effective. Uh, I really hope that 20 years from now, these things that I read about these experiences in psych hospitals are looked at with horror, as they should be. Um, you know, it would be the equivalent of somebody having a broken leg, um, and being treated with indifference or contempt um, at a hospital. Uh, but it is nice when I read ones where it was helpful to the person. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Ivana B. Alone. And uh, she writes, I'm very... I'm a very introverted person. I've belonged to the same church for seven years, but I go because of the connection I feel to God there 
not for any connection to the people. In fact, I thought I had avoided the people pretty well. I go most Sundays, uh, volunteer to serve donuts and coffee between services once a month, and have attended a few Bible studies, but I would never consider myself to be involved in the church. Last Sunday, the congregation was standing and singing a hymn, and I was looking out the windows, enjoying the view like I usually do, when something came over me, and I started really seeing the people around me. I saw the lady in front of me, who has spent the past several years working on her degree and a career. Now that her kids are older, she's looking back on all the time she spent away from them and wondering if she took the right path. I saw the elderly man, who always sits across from me. A few years ago, I watched him proudly walk into the church with his new, equally elderly girlfriend on his arm. The past couple of years haven't been kind to him, and I saw him sitting instead of standing slouched in his customary pew with his walker on one side and his girlfriend on the other holding his hand. I saw the woman in the choir who still battles the mental illness that almost broke her when she was younger. I saw the two church workers who both have adult children and who have become my sounding boards when I need to vent about my struggles with my own daughter. They commiserate with me and assure me that it is normal that we all go through struggles with our kids. I saw dozens of other people who were interacting with love. I realized that I had made connections that I hadn't even known were there and that without even noticing it was happening. I'd become woven into the fabric of my church and the lives of those in it. And instead of immediately thinking that I needed to find a new church where I could go back to being anonymous, I was warmed by the connections that I had made. I was surprised by how comforting it was to feel like I was part of a community. That's so awesome. That's so awesome. You know, wherever you can find your community. I'm not a big organized religion uh, person, um, but I'm happy for any person that can find their community and their spirituality there. Um, Thank you for that, man. Thank you for that. Oh, Any comments to make the podcast better? Don't be offended, Paul. I've been thinking about becoming a monthly donor at the $5 level, but I just can't handle imagining that when I die, my loved ones will find a video of a dog's butthole on my computer thanking me for my support. One of the things you get at the $5 level is a Herbert, uh, the late Herbert, uh, his butthole thanking you for, for donating. Uh, and I apologize to the monthly donors that I haven't been um, putting a, a, a much bonus content up there lately. Um, please bear with me. Um, I have seen some people uh, deleting their donations, um, their monthly donations, and I wonder if it's people that are upset with me or uh, maybe it's just their finances are tight. Anyway, this is a happy moment filled out by Catnip Banana, and she writes, For the first time in months, instead of the usual gruesome and terrifying nightmares, I dreamt that a hot, topless, blonde Tarzan type with two dicks fucked me every which way in every fathomable place at a beautiful seaside resort. Then he first turned into a large serpent, then a giant wolf, and fucked me in some very interesting ways using both animal forms. And then he tied me up and fucked me from behind until I woke up. I have no complaints, although perhaps I'll leave this one out of the dream analysis I do with my therapist. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, any comments to make the podcast better? Reactivate the sadly inactive dating section in the forum. I'm a 20-something uh, with raging hormones but too depressed to go outside and meet men. Someone needs to be fucking me like yesterday. <laughs> um, yeah, there. Uh, I forget to mention the forum, but there's a forum you can find uh, through our website, and there's a lot of uh, uh, really, really cool people that you can um, communicate with through there and it's sorted out by topic and you know, disorders issues um, and then you know places to express your creativity or somebody had suggested a thread for um, people to um, connect with each other uh, through there and so um, I put that up there this is a shame and secret survey and this was filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself, I think you're confusing me with another queer. And she is uh, pansexual in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, um, never been sexually abused, never been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, darkest thoughts. I have never been sexually abused, but even as a kid, I remember obsessing about, but what if I was? And it's always been this heavy thing that haunts me. I feel like that's not normal. I started regularly doing sexual things with friends my age, as young as about six or seven. The kissing and dry humping, we called it uh, the teenage game. And I know it's normal for little kids to explore sexuality, but I don't know. Uh, this seems weirder. I started compulsively watching porn at age nine, and 16 years later, I am still struggling with an addiction to it that makes me despise myself. I think the fact that you were compulsively watching it at nine um, is is definitely a, a, a red flag. Um, continuing, uh, especially because almost the only porn that can get me off anymore is uh, fake father-daughter porn, and it makes me feel so disgusting. And when I watch it, I don't really understand if I relate more to the father or the daughter. I have a lot of issues and discomfort and a tendency to depersonalize around intimacy and sex. And I know this is so fucked up, but in this weird way, I almost wish I had been sexually abused because at least it would explain something that is not fucked up. I have wished that before because I feel like that would silence the, the, the brain, the, the um, voice in my head that tells me what happened to me wasn't valid enough. I know that what happened to me is valid, but it's not, it, it wasn't overt enough in my brain for me to be able to put it to rest as valid abuse. And I have talked to many, many people who have described exactly what you said. And that is a very human thing to want, is to, is to want to know why am I, why am I the way I am? And I can't give you an answer for that. You may never get an answer for that, but I can tell you this much. It's time to start loving yourself and stop shaming yourself because that has never helped anybody. Um, and so finding <clears throat> a place to express your thoughts and feelings around these issues with safe people who understand you and don't judge you or shame you would be a really good place to start. Um, anyway, and, and I, I don't see anything wrong with, you know, if the stuff you're watching was performed by two consenting adults that are role-playing, what's the matter with that? 
You know, if, if you're doing it to a degree that it's eating into your life, it's taking away from other aspects of your life, then that's a problem. Just my opinion. Um, okay, I, I almost wish I had been sexually abused because at least it would explain something. Not that I'm actually romanticizing that at all or making light of people's real experiences. I swear it's just this desperate longing for an explanation, no matter how ugly. Also, I'm queer and my partner is a trans guy and I love him more than anything and I'm attracted to him, but sometimes I just crave cis dick so bad. Of course, I would never, ever tell him that darkest secrets. Very soon after I started watching porn as a kid, I started letting my dog lick me to get me off. This went on for about seven or eight years pretty regularly. She was such a part of our family that she really seemed very human in this weird way, and sometimes I really feel like I sexually abused her. I can tell you this much. It is a, it is much more common than you think it is. And again, shaming yourself is not going to repair anything. Um, Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. As previously mentioned, uh, father-daughter incest fantasies, even more powerful if it's anal, which makes me feel even worse. Uh, You should check out that book by Jack Morin, which is about um, why why do certain things turn us on uh, when they're things that uh, upset us in reality. Um, I think it's called The Erotic Mind. Yeah, check that book out. That might bring you some um, some comfort uh, to know that this is this is not unusual. What you're experiencing. Um, have you shared these things with others? Little bits with my therapist, and she does a good job of making me feel temporarily like I'm not a complete heap of trash. But usually, I revert back to that thinking. How do you feel after writing these things down? Okay, I guess. Question mark. Still gross. Um, Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. And um, you're so not alone. You're so not alone with that. This is a happy moment filled out by Whimsium. And uh, they write, uh, My mom was an alcoholic, and I spent my teenage years unknowingly battling depression and anxiety. It manifested in me failing my favorite subjects, skipping school, refusing to learn to drive out of anxiety, and most importantly to this story, not doing the dishes. It was only it was the only real chore my parents asked of me, but doing it felt like pulling teeth, and a ball of dread formed in my chest every time I was told to do them. My parents called me lazy, and I figured they were right. One day, my mom, who'd recently gotten the news from her doctor that her liver was fucked and she'd probably die in a few years if she didn't stop drinking, looked me dead in the eye and said my laziness was the reason she drank. Wow, let's let's let that sink in for a second. That is how ugly untreated alcoholism can look. The the way it can distort the alcoholic's view of reality. Wow, I can't believe she fucking said that to you. I carried both that memory and the inability to do the dishes with me into adulthood through moving out to live with my sister, through her death, through my depression culminating uh, to a suicide attempt, and I still didn't make the connection. Last summer, I finally sought help and found treatment. I began the medication I'm on now. 
I'd had my first holy shit, this is actually working moment in a parking lot when I'd stopped a rush of negative thoughts. But a week or so later, I had my first real happy moment. I was listening and singing along to upbeat music on my phone. The kitchen window was open and the sun was flooding in along with a slight breeze and I was elbow deep in doing dishes that had only taken a second to decide to do. There was no ball of dread. I didn't put it off. I just did them. It hit me. While looking at my sudsy hands and feeling the smile on my face that I'm not lazy. I was never lazy. I was just a girl who needed help. Your guys' surveys are just, uh, they're always great, but this episode, they're just really, there's so much recovery in, in these happy moments uh, in this week's surveys. And it just makes me so happy. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by Invisigirl, uh, who writes, Last year, almost to the day, I, for the third time in two months, thought I would die by his hand. As the fight escalated, he just opened the front door and bolted into the dark and raining night. I lay sobbing and crumpled on the stairs with the front door open. And as I watched him run, I realized he runs like Pee Wee Herman. Even then, it made me laugh. I am so grateful for whatever entity in the universe gave me the idea to create the Awfulsome Moments survey because they are like Christmas to me and the happy moments. If you haven't filled those out yet, um, those two are my favorites. And Because um, as you know, this show can get pretty heavy and it's really nice to have that levity uh, in there, even as, as bittersweet as they can be sometimes. Um, and... Uh, the other surveys that we draw upon a lot are the Shame and Secret Survey, although I'm really far behind in those. I'm almost a year behind in in <clears throat> reading those. And the Struggle in a Sentence, uh, those can be really, really profound as well. Uh, this is a, a happy moment filled out by, uh, this is our last one. This is filled out by, um, where's her name? Oh, did I cut her name off? Well, she'll recognize it when she hears it. Uh, I have complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and such severe trust issues and body image issues. I have just been isolating my entire life. I moved around a lot to run away from myself and to live in anonymity where no one knew me. Last year, I decided to come home and move into the house where I grew up. It's a big old house in the Austrian countryside, and I live here by myself now. Being back, not running, brought back a lot of memories and not the nice, nostalgic kind. This summer in particular, I had so many flashbacks and nightmares. Almost every week, a new memory came back of someone else who had abused me. It became unbearable, and I became severely suicidal. I was too scared to take sick leave, so I kept on working 40-plus hours a week and trying to hide the fact that I was losing my shit. Even though I live such a lonely life and I'm scared of any responsibility, I recently decided to get pets. I now have three tiny little bunnies named Alfie, Rosie, and Miss Biscuit. You've got you. How do you not name a rabbit Miss Biscuit? That, it would be abnormal to have three rabbits and not have one be named Miss Biscuit. 
Uh, they are everything to me. And it turned out the responsibility I was so scared of at first was a blessing. Taking care of them is so healing for me. They reminded me so much of the little girl I used to be. So excited and enthusiastic about literally anything. But they are also super anxious and frightened all the time, just like I am hypervigilant and jump at every tiny noise. I am so touched by how tiny and vulnerable they are and how they are mute and stay completely silent even when they are terrified. All of this has helped me so much remembering my childhood in a compassionate way, wanting to protect that little girl and hug her when she cries. It's been incredibly healing. Today was a particularly happy day, the first time in almost a year I felt calm and strong and happy again. It's a foggy, misty autumn day. I woke up, heated the wood burner, and filled the house with crackling warmth and the smell of tea and fresh laundry. Then I put on my boots and worked in the garden to collect more firewood and chestnuts and the last bit of this year's grass that I will make hay out of and feed to my bunnies over the winter. I felt like I was taking care of us, myself and my weird little family, preparing us all for the winter, making sure we will be safe and warm and fed. Throughout my childhood, I longed for someone who would be able to protect me. This house that I am living in now came closest to being that, quote, person. It gave me shelter and hiding spaces. I feel so much gratitude that I get to live here now and see how strong I can be and how I can give myself at least some of the things I never had. Be my own parent, with the little bunnies filling in as small me. The thought of their tiny little bodies and innocence makes me want to cry with gratitude for being able to keep them safe and protect their innocence. They proudly leave their droppings all over the house, and they love ripping apart my books. They are the worst. I love them so much. I'm glad I didn't die. I feel hope. P.S. I wish I could attach pictures of my fluffy friends, but suffice it to say, they are adorable and weird and pretty clueless. That's one of the best pictures painted ever of a happy moment in recovery. Um, I think I've I've read on this podcast. Um, you made me want to go visit Austria and buy you a cup of coffee and uh, and see your bunnies. I do love the Germanic countries. I had such a good time in, in Germany over the summer. Um, and I would love to see pictures of them. Maybe we'll post them on the Patreon uh, uh, donor site. If uh, if you happen to hear me read, uh, read your survey, send me pictures of the bunnies. I'd love to see them. And in the event that I, I get out uh, to um, that area, uh, Vienna is one of the places that I want to um, visit someday. Anyway, enough about you and your goddamn bunnies hogging the show, forcing your way in, putting the spotlight on you. Uh, thank you guys all so much for, for participating in this show, whatever it is that you do, even if it's just listening to this show and not feeling alone. That's a way... Um, of of participating because I believe that 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 energy of feeling a lift we carry that out into the world and that just spreads like ripples and um, 
I hope if you're out there and you're and you're feeling stuck, something in in this week's episode gave you a little nudge to take that first step and reach out and maybe ask for help. Um, And maybe you'll get some bunnies out of it. Just never, never forget, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely